Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Borrowway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Spark Parade. I'm Adam Ons. Thank you for listening again. Or for those of you who are joining me for the first time, thank you for listening at all. My guest this week is the artist Stephen Dunn. I spoke to Steve about the influence that Thomas Pynchon has had on his work. For those of you who don't know, Pynchon is a notoriously reclusive novelist, perhaps best known for writing Gravity's Rainbow, a book so dense it has defeated even the hardiest of readers, myself included, full disclosure. Steve and I talked a bit about the cult of Pynchon, um, who has a devoted, some might say, rabid fan base who pour over his work obsessively searching for hidden meanings, and they stalk the streets of Manhattan hoping for a glimpse of the writer, who is rarely seen in public. So all of that is coming up in just a bit. But first, a new segment. So every week before the interview... I'm going to talk a little bit about the way art affects the world around us. Um, It'll be a different topic each week, sometimes serious, although hopefully not too serious, sometimes funny, uh, hopefully hilariously funny, but always interesting. And it might be something from the news that's caught my attention, something related to the interview in the episode that week, as is the case today, or maybe just some random shit that's been floating around in my brain. Only time will tell. So this week, towards the end of our chat, Steve and I talked a bit about whether it's possible to separate an artwork from the bad behavior of its creator. It's just a few minutes at the end of the conversation, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about it here. Um, Obviously, this is a topic that's been in the news recently because of the documentaries about R. Kelly and Michael Jackson, as well as uh, the fallout from the Me Too movement. Uh, Steve and I came to the conclusion that the actions of the artist cannot be separated from their art. Um, The bad behavior becomes part of their story, and that's especially true when the artist's work is confessional or autobiographical, as is often the case with comedians. Even if their work presents a kind of heightened or fictionalized version of themselves, their audience presumes that they're hearing about the comic's real life. Um, A good example of that is... Everyone believes that Woody Allen is playing a version of himself in his films, and his personal scandals have played out in public, and now it's impossible, at least for me, 
to watch the movie Manhattan and see his 42-year-old character in the film having an affair with 17-year-old Mariel Hemingway without thinking about the real 57-year-old Woody Allen announcing his relationship with 21-year-old Suni Previn. And now, in the age of the internet and the 24-hour news cycle, virtually everything the artist does can become intertwined with the legacy of their artwork. I mean, uh, can anyone comfortably watch a Louis C.K. bit about masturbation anymore? Probably not. I don't think his work or Woody Allen's uh, should be banned. I don't think it should be forgotten about. But it's no longer possible to engage with that work outside of the context of their actions and their responses, their public responses to those actions since. So there you go. Uh, More random musings next week. But for now, my talk with Stephen Dunn about Thomas Pynchon. So, Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon, yeah. Well, well, when you when you asked me who did I or what was the influence that I wanted to talk about, the answer is kind of everybody, and and everything, and that's kind of what where my work comes from is this notion now of like a shared unconscious kind of cultural kind of alphabet that we can kind of pull things from. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, right, right, well, where does that come from? And it probably comes from people like Pynchon, when I encountered them earlier, where they, they use certain types of language or certain types of imagery to talk about the present. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, for, like, for example, like the first one I encountered was Mason and Dixon, where he's literally following these two English explorers as they plot the Mason and Dixon line across America. But it's, it was totally about, like, 90s America, I guess. And... I think, you know, that, that, and it's full of like red herrings and jokes and little songs and slapstick and like kind of little moments of brilliance. But you're always left with this where the kind of surface of the thing kind of collapses and then, and then forms back again. And I think with my own work with the types of drawings that I make, I kind of wanted that, you know, where it's not necessarily all things to all people, but that there's, there are things, there are little depth charges and, and red herrings and wrong turns, and, but that there's enough of a flicker of recognition for people to have something to go, oh, is that Little Red Riding Hood? Or is that the character at the end of Don't Look Now? Mm-hmm. And that it walks a kind of tension between something maybe really joyful and mythical and fabulistic, but then something that's maybe really dark, that's the kind of a horror thing. Yeah. So, I, I guess... Also, it seems like in a lot of his work, it's nearly literally everything, isn't it? Like there's so many characters, there's so much stuff going on, and um, it's just this kind of whirlwind of information and storylines all kind of converging. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the kind of moment we live in. I think, you know, between like our our relationship to social media and the sort of 24-hour news cycle and just even the pace at which we absorb things like through Netflix or something now, like we're, we're flooded with this stuff and it sits in our subconscious very differently than, than to say somebody who went about making a painting or a drawing in 1970, you know, that we we're, it, there is an information overload, but I think overload, but I think you can, you can skim off that and have fun with it as well. And that's what Pynchon does. You know, it's not just a warning or it's not just like overly arch and intelligent. Mm-hmm. or like impenetrable it's actually really really funny i mean if you you know the famous one of, of gravity's rainbow like the, the the whole first section is somebody slipping on a banana skin which yeah. 
you know, it gets lost in the impenetrable notion of, oh, this is a difficult thing. But it's, I guess it's like using a certain type of structure, you know, so there's always, there's a structure there, but that structure is, it's really malleable. It's like a, well, what's happening right now, you know? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, there's a wonderful bit in Against the Day where he describes this giant Godzilla foot landing in the center of New York and the kind of, just this kind of hole in the ground and this destruction afterwards. And he's, it's two pages or whatever where he's literally just describing 9-11, but there's no mention of it. You know, it's just done through the medium of, like, Godzilla. Like, in, in that the only way we can understand these things is through this kind of prism of the kind of fantastic or something. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember, you said Mason and Dixon is the first book you read? Yeah. Do you remember yeah. who, how you found out about him? Do you remember who told you? I remember, I think a tutor in college had mentioned something. It was It was literally Mason Dixon had just come out, and it was in the bookshop, and I saw this really big pile of books. And then I became loosely aware then it, there was some articles of like the kind of cult around him. Mm-hmm. And then that really drew me in. But this is sort of pre my access to the internet anyway. So it was, again, little fragments of things. And I started reading it and I was like, what is this? This is kind of bonkers. You know, it, it was like, like reading Treasure Island or something, but, but filtered through kind of a kind of politics or things. A lot of things I just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And then I think in that way, I knew I was onto something interesting in that, you know, there's, there's stuff to dig. And then you go down the rabbit hole and I, I you know, I kind of started reading them all quite slowly. I, I wasn't in initially a kind of an evangelist or something. Yeah, I kind of, I came to them and then, and then there was a few more that, you know, they were got published then every, so there was a gap of a good few years, like 10 years or something until Against the Day came out. Mm-hmm. And by that stage, I was I sort of fully signed up as a pinch and nut. <laughs> I was just thinking as well, like the fact that there are so many complex references to things that are happening outside of the books and references to world events or whatever that are not necessarily apparent unless you've, you know, read other things about the book or read it a million times and really yeah, you have to try to understand. And I guess that there are parallels between that and the fine art world that with a lot of work, it is, you don't necessarily have to understand the context and the history of the work that you're looking at to appreciate it, but it helps. And thinking about like just going to a painting show and understanding the people who've influenced that person and the history behind that style of painting or all of the references in the work. Um, And it's the same kind of thing to me, like with Pinch and stuff, like I don't think anybody can read one of his books and go like, got it, you know, first, first go, that's all very clear to me. Um, So it's kind of something that you have to invest in and something that, you know, if you really want to get, a full appreciation for its significance and its meaning, um, you have to dig a little deeper. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's like really extensive kind of Wikipedias that have been set up by this massive fan base that document almost every line of the books and have little images. And it's really rewarding in a lot of ways to dig. And I think maybe that's, that was the, maybe the valuable thing I learned from it, you know, that yeah, you can have this kind of surface appreciation and you can maybe get the banana joke. But then when you find out that there's a, there's a huge sort of like excavation of history going on, 
Mm-hmm. And, and 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 weirdly, like, um, and I, I don't even know if it's, it's a kind of contradiction in terms, but like it's an excavation of the present. He's 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 using these things to kind of show you what's happening now. And I think, you know, if anything, what I see as the purpose of an artist is to try and maybe make sense of your own world. But if that sense is this overwhelming flood of stuff, then that's enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you can just kind of mingle through it, like, and, 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 you know, and I think that's maybe the, certainly what I hope to get, or I hope a, a, somebody would get from seeing my work is that, oh, right, there's, you know, there's more here, I need to dig. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I hate more than going to a show and just seeing five white paintings and, you know, being told the answers within you or something, you know, that kind of, yeah. or purely process-based. I, like, I, I just find that a really empty experience. Which is, I think, I think as well, like when you ask me, like nearly all the influences and things I thought about were literary or cinematic or not necessarily drawn from painting, because I think painting and drawing is, is the kind of, that's the, that's the kind of raw material that the work chews up. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's like a kind of machinery for, for devouring that stuff. And, you know, you look at a, a drawing and you might see like a little turner in it, or you might see a little bit of something else, but I've already moved on, you know, they're just like, um, a friend of mine said years ago that I, that I was just riffing on imagery. It's like fun, you know? <laughs> the thing that I think is really interesting, though, is that like you it's, talking about his process or mm-hmm. the things that people have gotten from his work is <laughs> more than he has ever said about anything that he's done, at least, you know, in the last, I don't know, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and this cult... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like rabid fandom combined with a sort of Illuminati element <laughs> um, that you know, uh, all of that has developed in part because it's there's this huge mystery. He puts, you know, he's left all of the onus on his audience to figure out what's going on. Um, and isn't, you know, doesn't do interviews, doesn't make public appearances, has no interest and is like, actively avoids engaging with the public about his work and i wonder if that has made it do you do you know how people have managed to decipher his work without any input from him um i think it's there it's in the text you know it's the same as like james joyce or mm. shakespeare or any of these things it's in, he, he, i think he would just say it's in the text it's all there for you like it's it's laid out you know and it's, I mean, it's not like he writes in riddles or anything. Yeah. I think if anything, he writes with a certain kind of clarity. I think the, the hardest thing is just, you have to locate yourself and you have to see whose head you're in. Because often in the stories, you're not necessarily in the same person's head the whole time. Mm-hmm. A little bit like Joyce. And I guess being Irish, like I grew up on that kind of Joycean intertextuality where, you know, everything overlaps and one minute you're in X person's consciousness and then you're in somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Which I think is an incredibly useful way to view the world you know it's like get you out of your own head which primarily i think is what is, is what i've tried to do with the work in the last few years as well it's like use ways to get it out of being just me you know particularly like because you know often even if the Im- if the imagery is like violent or something people say oh you want to murder someone or oh you're violent and like if, if somebody wrote a, a crime novel you don't you know we don't think the crime writer is violent right it's and it's it's the, that notion of of you know whose eyes are you looking through and i think that's i think that's i think that's a really handy way to go about making things now you know rather than through the kind of prism of the 18th century or something which is which is where so much image making is stuck is still on this you know the 
the perspective of trying to make something beautiful or pleasing to the eye or decorative for the wall when it can be those things but it can also be something incredibly subversive if you can if you can kind of you know preload that mm. with with a kind of i guess like capturing a moment in the present you know mm-hmm. um, just having m- multiple meanings in individual moments and having something you know taking it as face value as part of the story having some kind of uh, historical or present tense news context, some kind of parallel between what's happening in the world, and also having moments that are at the same time really serious and absolutely absurd. And the humor is really knowing, and all of that stuff is like, it can make you feel like you know, you're part of uh, an in joke. Uh, yeah, yeah you're, you're definitely in on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is important in my own work as well. That I, I want it to be inclusive. Like I want someone to come and see the work and go. You know, I want like, like you were saying about the impenetrable nation or the maybe the opaque nature of a lot of art in galleries these days. Where unless you have an MFA or have done a lot of critical theory, you're not going to have the kind of cornerstones that will help you navigate that. Mm-hmm. And you know, because I primarily use notions of imagery it's accessible to anybody. So like a child could come in and go, Oh, look, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully get some of the humor as well. Or, you know, and also a lot of these things are kind of, you know, you think they're kind of exhausted within the art world. And that's why I think they're vi- They have a certain vitality to them. Like things like cartoons or illustration or pictures, you know, like we've been making pictures since the cave paintings in sequences mm-hmm. as, as ways of like, you know, communicating with each other. And, and I think, I, I try really hard to keep that within the work that there's, there are access points for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's inclusive, you know, and I, I don't want it to be this, maybe that's where pension falls down in that, you know, you're not going to read it when you're 15, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you will. And you, you become a kind of cynic at a very young age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, I, but that, just to get back to that cult thing as well. I mean, a lot of them are just English professors and people who are kind of, you know, have found something that resonates in a certain way that's really hard to find elsewhere you, you see it in william gibson actually the kind of fan base around him mm-hmm. where they dissect everything and then reinterpret it as the moment the current moment you know yeah but it uh, that is one of the most fascinating things about him to me is that his life has become a pension novel it's like yeah, 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 you know, yeah. this weird cult developing around this mysterious author who no one has any access to and it's not only all of these people trying to decipher his work and find you know hidden meanings beyond doing the work to find the meaning of the work in, in the first place is difficult, but then trying to find hidden meanings and, you know, messages that he's speaking just to them. And in addition to that, desperately wanting to find him and wanting to have an encounter with him. And, um, yeah. you know, it's and like, just, and he, he just lives in New York. <laughs> right. Right. But like that, uh, documentary that, um, you sent to me, um, the quest for P or whatever it's called. Yeah. And, uh, having these, total obsessives saying, you know, this guy wandering around the Upper West Side and being like, I know he's about 60 and he has an eight-year-old son. And I figured 
that's quite an unusual combination, so it wouldn't be too hard to find him. And boy, oh boy, there's a lot of 60-year-old men with 8-year-old sons on the Upper West Side. So, you know, I kept having to, like, rush up to different people all day long, and it's like, what the fuck are you doing? What, what is your life? Yeah. I think he tell you as well. Oh, yeah, it's me. Right, yeah. right. You found me. Yeah. I've been, waiting, I've been waiting for this all along, you know. And also finding someone, deciding that it's him, and then going up to him and trying to shake his hand and being like, oh, hello, sir, what a pleasure to meet you. And the guy just goes, fuck off, who are you? <laughs> and he kind of takes that as proof that it is Pynchon, and it's like, no, that's just the standard reaction to a crazy person accosting you on the street. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, and he's, it's unusual in this day and age of, you know, ubiquitous kind of a, you know, celebrity kind of, parents they're everywhere aren't they and that he chooses not to mm-hmm. is it's kind of it is very unique but he does live in the middle of new york and his, his wife's a publisher or, apparently it's quite common to go for dinner with him in certain circles mm. um, you, know, you the exclusive or the elusive thing that reminded me there as well i think the only other person who's who's reaching a similar level is um is it satoshi nakamoto the guy who came up with bitcoin mm-hmm. sort of like nobody knows who he is or what well, they kind of only found out recently but he's Again, somebody with this immense influence mm-hmm. who's, who's just like, you know, not playing the game. Yeah. But I guess the, the difference even between those two people is it's like Pynchon is a celebrity and yeah, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. in an industry where there's, you know, great value in pushing yourself as much as you push your work and doing book tours and interviews and, you know, trying to be as recognizable and um, approachable and discuss your work as much as possible so that, you know, you keep your name out there. And he's done exactly the opposite and has been more reluctant than even the most reclusive author in the world. It is absolutely incredible in the age of the internet where you're supposed to be able to find anyone or anything at any time that people still haven't managed to get a decent picture of him in, Ooh. you know, however long, 60 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like, there's all that stuff. Like he was on The Simpsons with a paper bag over his head. Yeah. With it's his, like actually his voice. Yeah. With his like broad uh, Long Island accent. Yeah, and he he did a little. There's a bit of reading from the last book. There's like an audio clip, I think, on the publisher's page where you can listen to him read some of the book. Um, and he, he, you know, about the book award. I think the National Book Award in the seventies. And he sent an actor. He sent an actor along to accept the award. And everybody was like, "Oh my God, it's Pynchon!" You know. And the actor read the speech that everything in the first half of the speech is contradicted by everything in the second half of the speech. Mm-hmm. So you genuinely you think you've got something again, and it's just this deck of cards that's collapsed it's really lovely it's like you said yeah he's become his own novel Mm -hmm. Mm. and it 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 does feel like he cultivates that as as much as you know he's invested in that game as much as he has in any of the rest of his work and it feels like it's part of his work like again that um moment in the documentary as well where all of those mega fans are going to some like book launch event and the theme is a pinch-in lookalike contest and they're all like it doesn't make any sense nobody even knows what he looks like how are we supposed to dress up and they go there and just you know randomly decide this man in the corner looks like he's about the right age and i'll just start kind of 
creeping towards him and like boxing him into a corner <laughs> and take pictures of him and then they show the pictures to someone who knew Pynchon and they're like no that's not him at all what are you that's talking not about him at all. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that was when the um, Mason and Dixon launched and I actually think part of when you asked earlier like what was one of the things and I think maybe I'd read that in the paper at the time mm. that the lookalike competition and that you know these people just went and that possibly he'd been there and I think oh this is real I, think, I remember thinking that, that's hilarious yeah, and like whether he was there or not, I just imagine him still to this day sitting in his house and thinking back on that and just cackling. I mean, that's that that is. I think the humor is really important, and I think particularly in in painting or contemporary art or something as well. Like humor can be really difficult to navigate because people expect, you know, people go to a lot a lot of shows or they they expect answers rather than questions or rather than, you know, and I think. Most artists these days just spend most of the time just coming up with questions mm-hmm. rather than the answers. And I think that's where you get that kind of disconnect where people go and see things and then they're like, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get an answer. Mm-hmm. And I think Pynchon is that. It's just like millions of questions as well. It's like, yeah. you know, what, what if, like what if X, Y, and Z happened? And, and then like, let's just see how, you know, because it'll descend into madness as always. Yeah. Maybe it is too cynical, though, as well. You know, there isn't really a kind of, there's no utopian vision in it. You know, it's not like, but I think he's fond of his 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 characters, mm-hmm. which I think is maybe maybe what the best you get. You know, a kind of fondness. Yeah. You know, and like like George Orwell Martin or someone who just wants to kill everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, I think that kind of balance between light and dark and humor and sadness it, it reminds me of like kurt vonnegut as well having, yeah absolutely yeah. you know this terrible sadness and like so so much of his work if you look at it if you take it at face value is really fucking depressing but he's also absolutely hilarious and you know even in uh what was that uh time quake that's like just it's amazing really, yeah really really depressing but also so so funny um and with i think pynchon's got the same kind of feeling it's much he does, it does feel like the same person actually um because yeah. it's funny you mentioned that because i i by, by the time i came to pynchon i would have read a lot of ronnie i'd read timequakes definitely or if i hadn't it was around about the same time because mm-hmm. i remember a timequake he, him very specifically talking about humans as broken radios who are on different frequencies and that you kind of you can be aware of people who are on a kind of similar frequency and you can communicate with those, but then the, the, the kind of the dial gets pushed. Yeah. I thought this was such a wonderful metaphor for how you, how you think about almost everybody, you know, particularly the moment when people are very divided, you realize that they're just, Oh, okay. They're, they're really on a very different frequency and that frequency, you know, whether it be Fox or Breitbart or any of these things, it is a frequency they're absorbing. Yeah. It's like resetting the dial maybe is the, the thing. I mean, all roads lead to those kind of conversations at the moment, don't they? It's, it's difficult not to. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, I mean, I think like, you know, like when you ask me at this, I think this is why I make, making things is an antidote to that as well. Like, you know, being, being creative in the world and like uh, trying to make sense of things and using, using visual languages and imagery to kind of find little moments of solidarity or moments of, of recognition with other people is, is, is a, a, I think a pretty vital form of resistance to that everyday bleakness mm-hmm. you know kind of the kind of despondency that's been re- really used against 
people at the moment. You know, despondency is a weapon that's being used against everybody. So yeah. I think being creative or even just talking about it like this is, is a way to combat that on a really minor level. You know? mm-hmm. Finding, you know, when you have artwork that can be interpreted in many different ways, if you're talking to people who do operate on different frequencies to you, you can still appreciate the same piece of art and maybe get different things out of it, but it still allows you to have some kind of common ground. Yeah. But, but interestingly, my, I think when you think about that as well, I don't, I don't see common ground with everybody. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a part, there are ideologies that are being skewed at the end of this, you know, it is leftist and it is socialist and it is anti-fascist and it is all of those things. Mm-hmm. It comes from those positions. It takes a position. Like it doesn't, I don't sit on the fence in terms of, oh, you know, all, all politicians are the same or all sides are equal. Like it's, mm-hmm. these, these aren't, these aren't, these aren't, it's, I think it should be really, really clear. I think if I'd be horrified if I found out that, really right-wing people were, were really into it for, for certain reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think it's there. There's nothing there for them. Having, uh, art, I guess, our art is something, and that's kind of what this podcast is about as well, is like art is something that everybody, regardless of how shitty their politics are, has some kind of appreciation for, and that I don't think you can drain the politics out of any situation and just say you know this is just art for the sake of art like there's always going to be meaning behind it and mm-hmm. it does matter what the interpretation is yeah well like interestingly like there was recently the, the national gallery in ireland showed an emil nalda show uh and they they completely sort of whitewashed over the fact that he was a nazi um which is difficult in the sense that he was a nazi and he wanted you know <laughs> the nazis didn't like his work uh, which is you know there's a like tiny moment of retribution in that maybe but i i really don't think you can just ignore the fact that a, a person you know believed in x and then just oh what a pretty picture you know but that picture is of a person with a really big nose with a wart on the end of it and mm-hmm. you know there's it's still the two things can't be just nicely separated out my mum just went to a, a show at the national gallery um of scotland that mm-hmm. sounds like the same thing i mean i don't know if it was the same artist but it was somebody else who was like had some kind of nazi affiliation and had really anti-semitic um artwork and you know she's a jew and she was like (laughs) went and uh, wrote to somebody at the gallery and was like look you can't strip this of its context you can't just present it as like this is an influential artist and you know there was some vague mention of like oh he he did uh yeah it's the same the same show. I just looked it up. Sorry, interrupt. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, and her, the, she got a response from the gallery, and they were just like, "Oh, yeah, we understand that. You know, it's a sensitive topic, and we are uh, aware that some people are going to be upset by." Yes. Uh, and she's like, "Fucking, of course they are." And yeah, it's completely toned out, you know. Yeah. Particularly at this moment, I think pretending that it's it's like you know, there's surely the job of the gallery as an institution is to put a historical context on it. Yeah. You know, and the, the National Gallery of Ireland had this little kind of, you know, little after effects clip of moving images. And it was like, he was a nationalist. He was a socialist. He was a ex. And it was like, no, he was a national socialist. Like, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I mean, in this moment as well, yeah. having, uh, 
I, I feel like there's a pretty big discussion going on about what, how much you can um, strip the context from the artwork just with things that are happening in this moment. I mean, people like, you know, Woody Allen and Louis C.K. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of debate, people trying to figure out if you can just appreciate the art that they've created and not have to think about the terrible things that they've done. And it's just like, yeah, possible. You can't, you can't. It's not possible. I, I, but I wouldn't advocate for it. I'm not, I don't want to ban this work. I don't want to not show it. I just want to show it in context, you know? Right, right. I mean, exactly. I, and that, and that, you know, the all, when people are accused of terrible things, tons of people accusing them all of the same thing. And when they admit to doing the terrible things, it becomes part of their story. And especially when their work has to do with, you know, you have a painting show that has like uh, caricatures of hook nose, money grubbing Jews. Yeah. And you can't say, oh, but it's just, you know, we're, we're just looking at the art um, and appreciating it for the influences had on other artists. And we're not taking into account the historical context. And it's like, it's all right there. The art is about that historical context. So, yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, to, 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 to drag it a little bit back to writers, like, I mean, I really, like, liked, if it's the right word, like, the writings of Louis Fernand Céline. And, like, Céline is, was a Nazi, but he hates everybody. And I think, you know, in the writing, it's, it's a writing of just pure hatred. And I think he latched on to something maybe that happened in his lifetime, blah, blah, blah. And the, the historical, biographical side of it isn't very interesting. But the writing is still really vital in its absolute kind of, existential disgust for humans mm-hmm. which doesn't mean throw those books in the bin it means read them with caution yeah um and the, the, you know the, the kind of the funny thing is like you see these annual lists in france of like the top 100 novel french novels of all time and they're always trying to leave him out but it's it is really vital it's like yeah look you know there's life's full of conflicts you don't necessarily have to just agree with everybody either yeah Nazis. Yeah, Nazis, yeah. (laughs) In summary. um, uh, So you feel like that's good enough? Quite a lot. We got got Nazis in there a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I always say, not just for the podcast, but in life, I don't feel like a conversation has been a success unless you throw the Nazis in. Well, you see, I don't think a Thomas Pynchon story has been... has been completed until we've really filled it up with Nazis. Yeah. So, so in a way, in a way, I hadn't expected to talk about them quite so much, but there, there they are, you know. Yeah. So, uh, where do the people find you if they want to find you? I know you have lots of stuff coming up. You can find me on Instagram, which is uh, uh, Stephen Dunn Studio on Instagram, um, and you can find me on the web at stephendunn.org. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, talking to me. That's great. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. And uh, yeah, that's, that is it. Little round of applause for Stephen Dunn. Um, please check out Steve's work as well. Um, he is an incredible, incredible artist. I'm not just saying that because he's my friend. He is one of my favorite painters. Please have a look at his work. Go to his website. Go to his Instagram. Uh, so... Now it's time for me to tell you the art that I have engaged with this week and enjoyed. So I know it's a little basic. You already know about this. Everybody in the world knows about this. But I went to see Captain Marvel. Uh, And I liked it. 
I'm not going to apologize for it. I know there's been some criticism, people saying they think it takes too long to get started. There's not enough action. I disagree. I liked the weird exposition at the beginning. I liked that you have to kind of wait to figure out what's going on. And uh, I thought it was really funny and really fun. And it's great to see a woman leading a superhero film and not having to be sexy and take off her clothes or any of that stuff. It was just like a solid Marvel movie. So check that out if you haven't already, which you probably have because everyone pretty much has. Um, I also watched uh, a film called Cretia for the second time. Um, it is directed by Trey Edward Schultz. He um, directed a movie called It Comes at Night, which you may or may not have seen. Um, and Cretia is his first movie, and it's this like intense family drama that has kind of has the framing of a horror movie. Um, it's so well done, but it is extremely intense and pretty depressing. So watch out for that. Um, and definitely don't watch it when you're hungover, which is what I did. Um, but still, you should check it out. It's great. Um, and lastly, I uh, went to MoMA. For those of you who don't know anything about New York or have never been here, that's the Museum of Modern Art. And they have a Juan Miro show on right now. He is a painter, was a painter. He's dead. Um, uh, Catalan painter, uh, painted surrealist paintings or uh, surrealist adjacent paintings, depending on who you are and how pedantic you are about uh, categorizing painters. Um, but I really love his work, and uh, it was nice to see a big old show of his stuff. Um, I'm going to post some of his work on Instagram so you can check it out, or you can Google it if you have a computer. Um, and that's about it. Uh, my only suggestion with going to MoMA is don't do what I did, which is go on free Fridays when everyone is trying to get in with uh, free tickets. It's... Uh, it's a little intense. It's too many people in one space, at least for me. So that's it. That's another episode down. We did it. Pat yourself on the back. Thank you so much for joining me again. I will see you next week. Same time, same place, all of that. Bye. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.